Again to the good trash genre cast where a bunch of people gather around a table and we talk about the films that you will never discuss in the course of film studies course but we apply film studies analysis to that film anyway this week's film is a little ingmar bergman swedish picture about death and a transgender operation called death becomes her <laughs> and uh maybe- <laughs> the shit out of that movie so fast there's chess that's played so it's like boys don't cry and um the Seventh Seal. There we go. Couldn't remember the name <laughs> of the damn movie. I can remember one of them. Uh, not the Bergman pick. Yeah, yeah, Boys Don't Cry and The Seventh Seal had a baby called Death Becomes Her. The Seventh Boy. I Seals Don't Cry. There Seals we go. Don't Cry, there we but they go. do when you club them. Oh, Jesus Christ. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Hey, listener, welcome back. We've got good equipment again. <laughs> we missed you. <laughs> We've missed good equipment, that's for sure. Yeah. And uh, we are very, very glad to be here with you. Um, dear listener, this is not a review show. It's an analysis show, so there will be spoilers later. But before we get into all of that, we need to introduce the disembodied voices speaking through handheld microphones all over this room. Uh, across the table to my slight right, if you would, sir. My name is Dalton Stewart, and these are the moments that make life worth living. Ha ha. Thank you very much for that, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Uh, directly across the table, if you would, ma'am. My name's Alexander Bohannon, and do you know what they do to soft, bald Republicans in prison? <laughs> <laughs> excellent, excellent. To my right, sir, if you would. Dalton, you stand there with your 22-year-old skin and your tits like rocks and laugh at me. Do you even care? Oh, it's pointless. I'm Arthur Gordon. <laughs> They are like rocks, in case you're wondering. <laughs> <Like rocks. laughs> my name is Dustin Sells, and not only am I cheap, I'm also a bad podcaster. But I'm very glad to be here with you all talking Death Becomes Her. Again, uh, this Swedish international picture uh, that we will not be spoiling until after our uh, thumbs up, thumbs down review section, which is up, of course follows our standard synopsis from the voice of the cinema. We move now to that point. Mr. Arthur Gordon, voice of the cinema, if you would, sir. When a woman learns of an immortality treatment... She sees it as a way to outdo her longtime rival. Thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I think that is precisely what happens in the course of the film. In 5.1 Dolby surround sound, too. Indeed, it was all around you. But moving right along, let's uh, get into our quick thumbs up, thumbs down reviews. Let's find out what we thought of this film. I begin with you, Miss Alexander Bohannon. What say you? It was okay. I mean, I've seen way better movies and I've seen way worse movies. And it's an interesting concept that has some 
interesting, troubling things to bring to the forefront of uh, beauty, death, you know, womanhood as it is, as it were. Um, Some stuff going on there. But I do think that this movie... I don't know. I, I really don't have a lot to say with it in terms of review. Like the, the practical effects are really cool. Um, some, but I wasn't really super drawn into the plot. I wasn't really captivated by it. It was pretty silly. And I think Bruce Willis saves this movie cause his just him just being doughy and there, but not Bruce Willis. I, I don't know. I think that he was underutilized maybe in a, in a perfect way. Um, I don't know. I, I don't have a lot of, a lot of things to say about it. It's, it's a movie. And we watched it. So I will give it um, 12 open maw gaping stomachs because of shotgun blasts out of a possible 28. Excellent. Thank you very much, Ms. Alexander Bohan. Mr. Arthur Gordon, what say you in terms of review? It's an all right movie. Um, I laughed a few times. Uh I don't think it was nearly as fun as Galaxy Quest was, however. Um, I like Meryl. I like Bruce Willis a lot. I think he's a lot of fun here. Uh, I love the makeup and the costuming that they're doing here. I think it's just his his hair in this movie is just a, a lot of fun. He's a blast. Arthur sent me a text uh, during this week when he was watching the film. He said that the um, hair of Bruce Willis was worth the price of admission. Yeah. And I think that's an accurate statement. This should have got its own movie poster, if, if anything. Um I, I like uh, these actors, but they've all done better work easily. Um, mm-hmm. Zemeckis has made far better movies. Uh, there are a couple things I enjoyed about this. Like I said, I laughed out loud uh, a few times. Um, but I think the one, thing it su- the one thing it succeeds at is something it suffers for at times. And it's a similar issue we see with uh, Devil's Rejects and the Army of Darkness. And it came up during Gremlins. But it's this, uh, this is Zemeckis' homage to classic Hollywood and specifically one director in particular, and I'm really going to get into that to my analysis mm. and talk about all of that. Uh, I think I know what you're getting at, Arthur. But the whole film is... There's a point to that, for yeah, sure. I think it's just, it's it's recreating and playing with and quoting all these old ideas and movies, and at times it works, and at times it doesn't, but I'm, I'm pretty mild about this one. So I would give it uh, 39 Jim Morrison's trying to hook up with a girl at a pool that Bruce Willis has just dropped into out of 50. Excellent. Yeah, that so, was God. That was oh, so funny. That, that was moment great. Was wonderful. Yeah. Thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What say you in terms of review? I, I mean, I'm. I feel like I'm with Arthur and Alex. I'd seen part of this movie before years and years and years ago. I remember it was on TV quite a bit in like the late '90s. I remember coming through the living room, being like, "What? What are we watching?" This death becomes her. I was like, "What's happening?" I we can't explain it. It's been going on for too long. Um, and yeah. The, I feel like that's a good point. This movie should not be so hard to explain, uh, and yet it takes every chance it possibly can take to become more complicated than it needs to be. Because what you have is a really solid premise. You have Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep, or really any other two actresses with good comedic timing in their early to mid-40s, obsessed with staying young. Uh, They're so obsessed that they end up becoming zombies, uh, essentially. And that alone is a great premise. Um, I have a lot of fun with this movie. I mean, I can see why Dustin picked it. We should point out that this is Dustin's host pick for this month. Uh, I don't think I would have wasted my host pick on this movie, but uh, (laughs) to each their own. Hey, I've picked Teen Wolf. And uh, and Rocketeer, so he, Dustin gets one. Yeah, I haven't forgot about I haven't forgot about that fucking Teen Wolf shit. Don't don't you think I have? Just wait till we do Teen Wolf too. Oh God, 
chase you around the room with a wooden spoon, you <laughs> bastard. Um, but no, I mean, it, it's fine. It's cute. And I, again, though, I think, I don't know if either of you touched on this, I can't remember, but there's, there's just too many peaks and valleys in the comedy. Um, and, and I feel that way when I, when I say it gets more complicated than it needs to be. I, I think that is intended to homage that kind of zany screwball comedy that they're trying to play up. What it does is it, it it limits the laughs for me. It really does because instead of doing what Screwball does so right, which is introducing plot complications that further the humor, it just introduces plot complications and further character motivations that really just make everything a big clusterfuck. Um, I, I like the changing alliances in the love triangle throughout. I think that's really interesting. Mm-hmm. Again, uh, Goldie Hawn and, and Meryl Streep are golden in this movie, and Bruce Willis is great too. Um, Isabella Rossellini is great too. I could have done with about twenty more minutes of her. I mean, she was so funny in this movie. Yeah, the look she yeah. shoots funny. Well, yeah, funny. The look she shoots uh, Meryl Streep uh, when Meryl Streep guesses her age, being thirty nine. So that I mean, that is gold. That made me laugh so hard. And then I laughed really hard when I found out that she was like thirty eight when they shot this. Which that woman's a vampire. Yes, she is. That she is a vampire. She still looks great. Um but yeah, it's just a it's a it's kind of a mess. I, I I like it. There's some fun things about it. Considering Robert Zemeckis directed it, it's kind of a shit show, honestly. Yeah. I mean, if you just if you didn't tell me who directed this, I say it's okay. You tell me this is a Zemeckis joint, I'm like, what the fuck, huh? Yeah, I had fond I had fond memories of this. And so when Dustin picked it, I was kind of excited, especially I had forgot Zemeckis had directed it. So I was really kind of amped up to to watch it again. But yeah, it's it it doesn't do it at it, all. It's def, definitely lesser lesser Bob, that's for sure. And I was surprised by that um, because I'm I'm a fan of Zemeckis' work. I mean, he is uh, kind of in that weird class of journeyman filmmaker where he is very talented, but he doesn't really quite have an aesthetic or a theme that he likes to play with. He just kind of likes to make what he likes to make, and there's nothing wrong with that. Uh, but it's just it's interesting that somebody with so much talent made kind of a meh movie, and I, I think part of that's probably the script's fault. Uh, maybe the script isn't funny enough. Who knows? Uh, maybe a, a director with more of a comedic background uh, would have you know, been able to amp those jokes up, would have been able to encourage more um, improvisation from the actors. I don't know. Um, but something's wrong here, uh, and it, it kind of does hold me back a little bit. So I give it four shattered Meryl Streep's out of a possible nine. Excellent, excellent. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Well, I, I am the picker of the film, and I think uh, I like this film a lot because it is precisely good trash. It is not going to be upper-level sort of, you know, those genre films that we all sort of know and love, that everybody's like, okay, Jaws is fantastic, right? And this is infinitely watchable. And, uh, e- e- and you know, when we talk about this show as uh, the good trash genre cast and as a show in which uh, we are trying to talk about films that we won't talk about in a film studies course, but they're still good. And we cheat on that a lot. Yeah. We, we do, we do. And Jaws does come up, you know, and, and, and movies like even the Aliens, The Matrix, you know. Yeah, films we, we've chosen for this show without doing like a host cheat, technically, yeah, some of those do show up in film studies courses. You're right. And, and, th- and this movie, was what's great about it, I think, is it, it's absolutely, I think it's absolutely solid. I think it's super, super funny. When Bruce Willis is finding out you put her in the morgue, she's going to be furious and, and runs. I mean, it's, it's a funny, yeah. fun, and, and it, there's so many of those moments. I, I guess for me, like, it passes my six laughs rule that you it have. Absolutely does, yeah. For me, there's, it just, I'll, I'll get like three or four really solid laughs, and then there'll be a really long dead zone. And it's just kind of weird. It's, it's a, maybe it's a pacing thing. I don't know. I yeah. kept checking out, checking in, and being like, oh, still there. 
Okay, we're going to go I, along. I guess I don't really here. think of it as a comedy so much. I do think of it as sort of a fantasy story, uh, mostly, and then that it happens to be just really, really funny in moments. And yeah. that's just sort of a different thing, I guess, in my I mind. I guess that's true. I, th- I think the opening of this movie, that first ten minutes or so, is hysterical. Yes, it is. I Goldie Hawn and all her cats. Yes, Goldie Hawn as, as, a, as, a, as a fat cat lady. Yeah. God, Eating yes. tubes of frosting. I would have watched that whole movie. <laughs> <laughs> I would have watched just the movie of her in the, the mental hospital. Like six like, months or whatever? Yeah, yeah. or the seven, seven years. Oh, yeah. I want to talk about Madeline. <laughs> no! Everyone screams. Yeah, it's really funny. So, so I, I, I guess I do see why you picked it, but but for me, there is something about it that, that doesn't quite you know, meet meet the snuff that I... I is, is it the personal connection thing is a question that I would want to ask. That's true. Is, is it a thing where, okay, this doesn't, you know, I mean, you know, boyhood wonder and sort of those standard sort of things that we go into when we talk about these great sort of genre films. And this is this is more of a uh, tale of a woman aging, you know, and told in a... And so is it, is it less relatable since none of us are aging women? No. I'm, well, I'm an aging woman. You are not. Well, like, in terms of I mean, my really, body we're, we're is slowly decaying, uh, decaying over time. On a long enough okay. timeline, this Delta rivalry for everyone Middle-aged drops to zero. aging women. How about that? Well, I mean, in some instances, it, it, it was almost too relatable, which I'll be able to talk about in our analysis. I mean, Dalton and I have similar themes we're going to discuss, but... I mean, maybe, you know, knowing that I'm going to have to deal with some of these issues in terms of, like, aging. Um, I know that I'm going to have to deal with some of these issues in terms of, like, getting older as a female person because it is, you know, not to spoil our analysis. It's definitely socially acceptable for men to be old, but not women at all. And uh, I can't I can't wait for it, frankly. Dad bod. Oh, fuck you! <laughs> I know. I, but, that, but that's what I mean. You know, it's like the sort of social ex- acceptability of something that's really disturbing. Well, I don't, that, that, that we'll talk about that in another day. Yeah. Anyway, so um, yeah, I mean, I could relate to the film, but it didn't make it even. It didn't make it super interesting to me, or more interesting. I was just thinking of a film um, from last year. I mean, Under the Skin is a film that you know I don't. I, I'm not a. I'm not Scarlett Johansson's character in that movie. I'm, I'm not a. I, I think that does a really good job of. Uh, you know, depicting the experience of women, depicting an, an outsider looking in on humanity, and I think that's a film that does a really good job of making you connect with an outsider perspective. Um, so that's just a genre film with a perspective that is not my own, just off the top of my head, uh, that I connected to quite a bit, and I, I, I just don't have that. So I don't, I don't think it's that relatability thing that you're talking about, Dustin. I don't know. If, I don't think that's what holds me back because there's plenty of films that are, you know, sci-fi or, or genre of any kind. Uh, that don't have that don't engage my boy like wonder, mm-hmm. and I still really connect with and still am really engaged with. So I, I don't think that's what's happening here. I honestly couldn't tell you. I'd probably have to watch it another time or two to really figure out what it is that that holds it back for me. Okay, well I, for me though, again, it does pass the six laugh test. Uh, I think I think Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn they're are great. Yeah, brilliant in this. I, I Bruce Willis is, is you know we've already talked about this. I do think some of the special effects you know there's early CGI being used in places here and mm-hmm. it doesn't age well. You know as um, Meryl Streep has not either apparently in the uh, film, not in, in real film. life. In, in real, real life, like she looks about the same. We yeah. would never besmirch you, Meryl. Never, N- never, ever, never, ever. Bruce Willis looks older in this movie than he does in real life, at least right now. I don't. I think. I think that's probably truth. Um, and, you know, I mean, of course, yes, there are better Bruce Willis movies. There are better Goldie Hawn movies. There are better uh, Meryl Streep movies, obviously, because she's Meryl stinking Streep, you know. Mm-hmm. So, but I, just, I, I like it a lot. It's a lot of fun for me. I did read that they gutted the third act of this film and totally reshot really? it. And I think yeah. that that shows. I really do. 
Um, I didn't know that watching the film. I didn't learn that until afterwards. And as soon as I read that, I was like, that makes perfect sense. I mm. will say, the end of this movie, the very end of this movie, without getting spoilers, is amazing. It's really fantastic. It is a yeah. perfect ending. That's to a this great movie. Mo- ending. Yeah. yeah totally. The ending is great. Well, uh, again, for, in terms of review, though, I would probably give it, um, I don't know, eight and a third. Um, pickaxe handles through Goldie Hawn's uh, stomach out of a possible <laughs> ten and a quarter um, then sit down on the couch through the hole. Uh, because so funny. So that was a great moment. It's so it's, funny. It's a really funny visual gag. There's a lot of good visual gags. Yeah, uh, yeah there are. Meryl Streep getting whack a mold is really funny. <laughs> yes, it is. Yeah. So, there you go, dear listener. Now you know our biases as we come into uh, what we're doing. But this is not a review show. It's not what we're about. We're, we're here to bring analysis. We're here to talk about the conversation. And I do think part of the reason why I picked this film is because it is um, it, it, ripe and fruitful uh, for a great many conversations about uh, civilization and uh, particularly American culture. And so I begin with you, Mr. Arthur Gordon. What say you? Well, as I've prefaced in my review, uh, there's been a familiar trend in the movies uh, that we've watched of late. Uh, namely with Army of Darkness and Devil's Rejects. Going back, we could look at Gremlins. Um, those two more recent films, though, uh, that I mentioned, both featured auteur directors, maybe vulgar auteurs by Dustin's uh, vocabulary. Those are two auteur directors who uh, used those films as outlets from which their love of cinema poured. Uh, Kirsten Thurkelson gave a great reading about uh, how Raimi put together a uh, bunch of his favorite moments from horror films and turned it into his own horror movie. And then Dustin gave a very similar reading to uh, Devil's Rejects and how it was Zombie's love letter to 70s cinema, uh, Star Wars and Texas Chainsaw and all those other films from that decade. Uh, This week I'm going to give a similar reading about Death Becomes Her and how it is Zemeckis' love letter and at times maybe scathing indictment of early Hollywood in its final form. It is a film that pays a complete homage to uh, one director in general. And going back to something Dalton mentioned earlier, I think there may be a thematic thread that runs through uh, Zemeckis' work. Um, I think Zemeckis likes to go back and point a light at certain points in time. That's a good point. Okay. uh, And maybe he... uh, indicts it a little more than we realize. And I, I say this I, I guess I was thinking about some of his more recent films, yeah. Castaway and Flight and his weird trilogy of uh, CGI motion capture films. Polar Express, Beowulf, and... Uh, uh, Christmas Carol. Oh, yeah. yeah. So that's... I was thinking about, it. I guess, his last five films okay. yeah, kind yeah. of really don't show much of a narrative, especially, I mean, between those three films and Flight. And even... Yeah. I mean, Castaway and Flight both have a plane crash, but that's about it. Yeah. Um, but going back, I think those early the '80s and early '90s work. I think there may be something to Zemeckis's work, uh, but that that question may rearise at the end of my analysis. Okay. Um, here we see a lot of references to classic Hollywood. Uh, both Streep and Hahn are designed here to look like classic Hollywood actresses. Uh, we see direct quotations of Frankenstein when we see the abnormal brain in the doctor's office. Mm-hmm. Uh, we also have a direct quotation of One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest in the group therapy scene early in the movie. Uh, this is done in the scene setup and camera work, which is a direct quote of Milo's Foreman's uh, masterpiece. And then we also get a direct reference to Sunset Boulevard, both through Streep's character, the aging actress uh, who uh, can't get any respect. And this is also the location to which Earn and Hell take her uh, to murder her, or in the in the in the plan anyway. They're going to take her to Sunset Boulevard and kill her. Yeah, um, with the with the stopover at Mulholland Drive. Mulholland Drive. Yeah. Um, and so here we see uh, these references to some major uh, works. Um, and there are some other intertextual quotes that we see from Zemeckis, and there are more that I'll get to in a second. And there are many directors who seem to aim to make a movie in the vein of their mentors or Hollywood idols. Uh, Chanwick Park does this with his thriller Stoker, which is a very Hitchcockian film. 
Uh, Spielberg literally got to make his uh, Kubrick film with AI, mm-hmm. which was literally a Kubrick film before Kubrick passed away. Um, and then when De Palma would do this with Hitchcock, uh, these are men who all looked up to these iconic directors of old and wanted to pay homage by emulating their style. And Death Becomes Her is Zemeckis' Hitchcock film. And more in the Hitchcock comedy of errors vein, emulating a movie like The Trouble with Harry or even North by Northwest, where we have these kind of bumbling episodes where things aren't what they seem and they're going to completely wrong. I, I, I thought of The Trouble with Harry when I watched this, and I think it is definitely a similar vein. Absolutely. And there are a couple of quick quotes of Hitchcock's work. Uh, the first is seen early on, and it is a film that uh, Madeline starred in at some point that holds a similar title, Rear Window. I can't remember what it's called, but we see a, the poster or the cover work for it. Mm, and I don't it's remember a similar, the name of it. No. It's a similar title to uh, Rear Window. And then the next major one is we see our femme fatale, Hell, uh, dressed in red and using a phone which harkens directly back to Hitch's dial M for murder. Uh, this emulation continues from story, stylistic, and more technical approaches. Our male protagonist, Bruce Willis's urn, is a very flaccid man. He is somewhat emasculated and doesn't do well to perform when needed. Uh, this calls back to many protagonists played by Jimmy Stewart and Hitch's work, uh, most notably. What? What? what do you mean, flaccid? Well, that's not a nice th- thing to say, Arthur. <laughs> Fuck you, you ginger. <laughs> Jimmy, please. Good Lord. That was uncalled for. That may be one of uh, Dalton's better impressions I, I think in the spectrum. I think so. Yeah. I was say, that Jimmy Stewart was pretty good. Right, top I'm, a, I'm a little proud of that one. Uh, but these, these uh, protagonists played by Jimmy Stewart and Hitch's work, most notably the impotent detective in Vertigo uh, who can't save the day because of his... Uh, his issue, and the even more impotent character of Jeff in Rear Window, who literally can't do anything to save the day except look out from across the courtyard. Um, from here, we look at our female leads. Streep is wonderful as the icy, hitchcocky, and blonde Madeline, uh, who upholds many of the traits of Grace Kelly, Tippi Hedren, and of course, Kim Novak. Then, of course, Hell embodies many of the femme characteristics we would see from Hitch's work and other classic film noir movies. And the final major reference that has to be mentioned is a direct correlation to Hitch's work uh, that literally connects the two filmographies, and that is Liesel, who is played by Isabella Rossellini, who is the daughter of the other major Hitchcock lady, Ingrid Bergman. Mm-hmm. Yes. All of these pieces fit perfectly together to allow for Death Becomes Her to be viewed as a Hitchcockian film. Now, the issue that rises again is one of authorship. When we did Daredevil, I talked about how the auteur theory and authorship is problematized by the studio system and intervention there. And it may be, uh, and this is a question that maybe uh, we could have raised with other filmmakers such as uh, Zombie or uh, Raimi uh, that I mentioned earlier. Uh, It's one thing to reference a mentor's work. It's something you see in literature and film all the time. Stephen King often does things that remind us of Lovecraft or Matheson in his writing. Tarantino's films are rife with references to cinema from all over the world. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I say all the time, it's, it's the hip-hop of filmmaking. It's literally taking samples from something that exists and making something new out of it. Yeah. And the question Zemeckis' work, as well as uh, Raimi and Zombie, is raising is when does emulation void authorship? It may be a tricky situation with Zemeckis, although he probably had a good amount of control here because he's coming off of Back to the Future mm-hmm. and uh, uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. Yeah, so, I mean, he just made a big pile of money. Yeah, so I'm assuming he's probably got uh, some free reign going on here. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, but Raimi and Zombie were working more independently and were probably about 100% in charge of what they were doing. So when does this quotation simply become something all of plagiarism, and how do we truly view their work? Uh, do we look at it like the Mario Puzo novels or even the Ian Fleming novels uh, that became ghostwritten by other authors under those names of Puzo and Fleming um, after their 
moved on from writing and he passed away. All right. So this is kind of that similar theme that we're seeing there. Um, so do we actually look at Death Becomes Her like a Hitchcock film? The fact that it isn't great or, you know, cl- you know, classic, it wasn't critically well-received or whatever, uh, that, you know, doesn't really mean anything because Hitch had some stinkers. If we go back in his filmography, not all of his films are you know, masterpieces. He's got 50-something films. He's remembered for roughly 10. That's accurate, yeah. And not all, I think, I think they're all actually brilliant, but yes, I don't, they're not all very well-reviewed. Yeah. Correct. But stylistically, thematically, technically, and visually, it is a very Hitchcockian film. And we now have to, again, put auteurism on a shelf and question who the author actually is. To get even more existential, it is us, the audience, who puts these connections together and fully being able to connect inter- and intertextual dots. Uh, we put together a whole new meaning of the work in our mind. In doing so, based off the theories put forth in his essay, The Death of the Author, uh, Roland Barthes uh, raises the idea of audience as auteur. Uh, because it's only we, the viewers, the readers, the enveloped, who are able to devise a uh, full articulation of the work. Uh, so now I leave you all to sit and ponder these questions of authorship. I think those are some really good points, Arthur. I really appreciated that reading. And I certainly don't have any answers to those questions yet. No, hell no, I don't have any answers <laughs> to those questions. But uh, they were definitely, I mean, thought-provoking. I, I really, I, you know, anytime one of us provides a reading that asks questions that honestly nobody has an answer to off the top of their head, I like that reading because I like things that make us consider the film. Thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon, for that analysis. Mr. Donald Stewart, what say you in terms of analysis? Well, I know Alex and I have, have a lot of bleed over. So, Alex, if you, if you feel like you need to interject at any point and you want to just go ahead and start talking together, feel free. Uh, but sure I know thing. you and I both kind of went the same way with this. Uh, um, I, I don't know how similarly we went. So, obviously, I, I mean... From start to finish, this film is obsessed with aging and beauty. More specifically, it's obsessed with how Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn's characters uh, are obsessed with it, Helen and Madeline. But considering this film was made within the Hollywood studio system, I don't think we can talk about it without talking about the fact that the Hollywood studio system is obsessed with age and beauty, particularly when it pertains to women, uh, usually white women. Um, there are not a whole lot of people of color in this movie, for the record. I know it's only 1992, but you know we were supposed to be better by, by then. Uh, you know, not 1950. Come on, let's get it together, guys. But uh, th- that's kind of beside the point. The point is that I-, I feel like Zemeckis starts out to be saying something very interesting about how damaging and dangerous that obsession can be. Uh, you know, I, I really d- do feel like at, at some certain points, it-, it does seem to be a very kind of poignant film, and Arthur's right. I mean... Uh, I think Zemeckis might be a little bit more subversive than he often gets credit for. Uh, And again, this one particularly is extremely dark and subversive. I mean, the ending of it is bleak as shit. Yeah. I mean, it is a ballsy, in-your-face, negative, angry, mean-spirited ending um, that all kind of seems to say, this is what your obsession with age and beauty will get you, Hollywood. It will get you broken people who are unable to function. Uh, And I think... Han and Streep are both, you know, kind of held up as actresses who have aged gracefully, who have. Um, but again, the fact that I'm saying they've aged gracefully uh, just shows goes to show how ingrained this is, not only in Hollywood, but in culture as a whole. Uh, and it's, you know, it's kind of a little trip up that I didn't even mean to have just now. Uh, I mean, it's really hard to escape. The problem with this, for me, um, where the film does seem to lose uh, its footing, does seem to lose uh, the legs it has to stand on, as it were, is the fact that Bruce Willis goes on to lead a long and happy life, and they talk about how he embraced aging and had this family and lived and died, and that's the end of the movie. So what do we learn, kids? 
Men are better than women because they accept aging as a natural part of being alive, uh, and they fade gracefully into their years and pass their lives on to their children that they, you know, put into women. It's kind of a fucked up ending. Yeah. Uh, the, the funeral <laughs> really undercuts the interesting, subversive things the movie has to say, that whole funeral scene. Uh, now, the the ending at the stairs, again, redeems it a little bit for me because it is so bleak and kind of mean-spirited. And, you know, I don't always go for that kind of thing, but in this case, I really did. Uh, I like that every once in a while. I, I know I don't I don't always like <laughs> like an ending, uh, film or ending, uh, for that matter, that, that is that mean. But I really like just them shattering in, into pieces. It's hysterical. But, again, there's really good points Mega seems to be making. I mean, Meryl Streep is playing an actress. I mean, that is not by accident. Her obsession is to do with her career. She can't get parts because she doesn't look young anymore. She can't, can't get all the things she wants because she's not young anymore. The whole reason she was attracted to Bruce Willis was because he was a successful plastic surgeon. Uh, so I, the whole movie, they're playing with these really interesting ideas, and they got all these extremely attractive women over the age of thirty-five to fill these roles of these ageless these women who've taken this you know fountain of youth potion, and then they just drop the fucking ball with that funeral scene, and it's really fascinating, and it does kind of seem to hold up this myth that yeah, uh, men are allowed to age and women aren't, and that's fine. And I, I feel like that's where that studio intervention kind of comes in. I, I, I don't know a lot about the original, you know, planned ending for this film. Uh, I know Tracy Ullman uh, would have played Bruce Willis's wife that he ends up marrying, and Tracy Ullman's amazing, so that would have been great. Um, but all I know is that the film we get undercuts this whole interesting, subversive through line it has by saying that, well, Bruce Willis did it right. He didn't take the potion, survived miraculously the death he was about to have, and got to lead a happy, beautiful life and embrace aging naturally. Meanwhile, Goldie Hawn and Meryl... I almost said Goldie Streep. Goldie Hawn and Meryl Streep are these horrific zombies. I'm not going to say you're wrong in, in giving that reading. And because we really are dealing with a three-character film, and so and only one of those happens to be male. And so we have these two women, you know. And mm-hmm. I'm sort of stereotypically obsessed with beauty and all that sort yeah. of things. And, and we do have Bruce uh, going ahead and, and embracing his life and his death. But... Um, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm always a little nervous to say the film is saying things based on things it doesn't say. It just doesn't bother to go ahead and deal with. Because there really isn't another character. There isn't a, a female character that's being dealt with one way or the other who is, um, who's facing aging in any sort of mature kind of way. But that doesn't mean that the film is suggesting that women never do that. And that's true. Bruce I, has a wife, I, you know, at I, the second yeah, half. Yeah, right? I guess the, the point that I'm making is of we, we have, you know, three leading females and one well two leading females one supporting female one major male character that's the only character that handles aging in a mature fashion right uh and it's not till after a near-death experience i will say that bruce willis is on board he is ready to paint them up for a while Mm -hmm. uh, and be and be that patriarch making them pretty so i I don't know i I, again i'm not trying to say it's saying that i guess i'm just saying it's saying interesting things uh, about aging and about the objectification Mm -hmm. Uh, of women in entertainment, and then drops the ball well, and doesn't it, pick it back up. And, and I don't know if we're holding it too ho- too high of a standard to try to s- sort of suggest to the film that it needs to be a track. You know, that's uh, like a track, like a like a handout pamphlet, like a track. You can, oh, okay. You're, you're oh, me, like a like a preacher. Yeah, thing. You're, yeah. You're giving me a face there. Like this is this is the point that I'm trying to make. I, I'm not I'm not so sure it's that intentional. I, and again, I, I I'm not saying it is intentional. I'm saying the way 
that that it comes across by having the final thing we sure. know about Bruce Willis. And, and again, it keeps cutting back to Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn snickering at this life that he led. Um, Fair so, enough. So again, I'm not saying the film's saying that. I, I'm, I think within the context of the film, what we're getting is that these two, I mean, you know, 35 years later, they are just as petty. They are just as vile. Uh, they are just as mean-spirited. Uh, they've just teamed up with each other through, honestly, process of elimination. They're stuck with each other. Yeah. Um, so I'm not saying that it is making these large, sweeping generalizations. I'm just saying that, unfortunately, it seems by accident. I'm not saying it was, you know, I, I hate, you know, saying that a film does something intentionally. It's just what you take from it. Uh, and we talk about that on the show all the time. I'm just saying by having two male, two female characters and one male character and having that one male character be the only one that has a mature reaction to aging, um, I don't know, it, it just under it undercuts all the other interesting subversive things it does, I guess, is what I'm saying. Well, that's a fair uh, point. To me, I think that it not so much says that the, that the man is smarter and better and the women are stupid and catty and that they have, like, really immature reactions to aging. To me, it says... This is what society thinks is okay. The man is given permission to go ahead and age, have kids, you know, die, look old, be fat, whatever. But the women, it's not so much a commentary on, like, the characters' internal reactions with each other, but a larger perspective on, yeah, the man had a wonderful, fulfilling life, and he's in this casket, and all these people love him so much. Um, But we're not going to let our women age because they have to look pretty for their man. They have to look pretty to have a job, to be a writer, to be famous, whatever. Um, So it's more of, like, a prescriptivist kind of... Right, and it seems like the film presents that as ludicrus, though. Like, this is is ridiculous that these expectations are being put forward. Right, right. Um, so I, I think you make a really great point, Alex. I, I guess the only the only thing that I that kept me from not even recognizing that that might be what it's doing. And, and honestly, I I like what you're saying better than what I said. To be perfectly honest, um, I, I guess the only thing that kept me from having that reaction uh, was the two of them snickering in the in the back of the church. Was Bruce Willis miraculously falling through the glass in the pool and then somehow <laughs> surviving, uh, yeah. and then being like, oh. I'm going to, you know, it's not natural. I can't drink this. Like, there was something about the way that that played to me that... Oh, it rubbed mm, me the wrong way, too. Don't get I, me wrong. But, <laughs> I, want, but I, I, I want to believe that you're correct, that the film is pointing out this is silly. I, because it is a screwball comedy. It is kind of an absurdist tale. Uh, the, this kind of magical realism, but also very silly and wacky. And, and I, I want you to be right, Alex and Dustin, that it is, it's not validating that view it is pointing out how ludicrous that perception that a uh, culture perp- uh, perpetuates is uh, just how absolutely silly town bonkers it is uh that we we get to say this gender is allowed to age and, and you know bald and gray and get pudgy use not so much keep it tight keep it right um so yeah no i want to believe that the film is saying that's that's ludicrous for some reason the presentation and that, that was what I got the whole movie for about an hour and 15 minutes. And then that last 15 minutes, I felt cut it off at the knees. I want to believe you're right that it is just highlighting it as opposed to undermining itself. Yeah. Um, the, I mean, you're right. They, I think I'm they going to go ahead and hand it off to you. Oh, it feels sure. like we've got a lot of overlap, so yeah, take it no, away. Yeah, no, we totally do. Um, yeah, there are some tonal things that would, I think, definitely give that. Should the they have been, like, giggling in the back row, you know, that's 
you know, the director's choice to have them do that. Did it, did it undermine the message, perhaps, in presentation, if he really wanted to convey something more constructive rather than destructive? Um, today, though, I'm going to talk to you about the beauty myth and the beauty myth. Sorry, I talked away from the mic when I said that. Um, and how it really relates to women in this context. Um, it does have to deal with aging, but it's a different facet of aging and uh, beauty. Um, the, I'm t drawing a lot of my work um, today on my analysis from uh, Naomi Wolf's, you know, self-entitled The Beauty Myth, uh, how images of beauty are used against women. Um, essentially, the beauty myth is the obsession with physical perfection that traps the modern woman into an endless spiral of hope, self-consciousness, and self-hatred as she f tries to fulfill society's impossible definition of flawless beauty. And there, um, this book is divided into ch chapters and how the beauty myth is used in realms of dealing with sexuality, dealing with um, hunger and food, um, jobs, corporations. But um, from the introduction, I found like this passage just completely sums up what this movie is about, at least in my, in my view. Um, because the beauty myth is always prescribing behavior and not appearance. Um, essentially, competition between women has been made part of the beauty myth so that women will be divided from each other. Youth until very recently virginity have been beautiful in women since they can stand for um, experiential and sexual ignorance. Aging in women is unbeautiful since women grow more powerful with time and since the links with older generations of women must always new be newly broken. Older women fear the young ones, young ones feel th fear the old ones, and the beauty myth truncates all the female lifespan. Uh, more urgently, the women's identity must be premised upon our beauty so that we will remain vulnerable to outside approval, carrying all the vital sensitive organ of self-esteem to be exposed to the air. Um, essentially, to me, what happens in this movie is that these women spend their entire lives living to the beauty myth um, in terms of trying to win over their man to get higher and better in life and et cetera. But then that competition, that driver aspect is what they use as the focus for the rest of their life of having um, Helen and Madeline trying to outdo each other on who's the hottest, who has the tightest boobs, rock hard boobs. That, that still cracks me up. Um, okay. Who has the best ass, you know, looks the best at whatever high school reunion they're at, what, et cetera. What makes it cool is, is it frames that, that larger narrative of trying to fit society's standards into a smaller film context of them fighting against each other, which I think is kind of cool, just from a story-making standpoint. Exactly. And I feel like this whole, this entire movie can be taken in a context of how this competition between women within themselves, it, it definitely obviously disempowers women, as Naomi Wolf discussed. It, you know, causes people to cause of women to distrust each other and to not build each other up whenever they could be doing something else, anything else. They, both these women in this movie, this, these sad women, they use their entire lives to get ahead and one up each other. I mean, I mean, I know they do that seven years later, seven years later, 35 years later, you know, perhaps closer to a hundred years of, of a, of a wasted life. I, I don't feel you know, a bastion calling it that by them not channeling this energy they have to, for, that they have in competition with each other to creating something else, to making something more of themselves, to changing something, anything, um, you know, they could just be, it doesn't have to, like they have to do something huge or anything, but they, 
they just waste all this potential. And that's the purpose of the beauty myth. If you want to buy into kind of like kind of more of a conspiracy theory is that this myth is used to entrap women so that they can't realize that their surroundings could be made better and just let the men do all the heavy lifting and do all the work and make all the tough decisions because they have to worry about if they have a zit or wrinkles or cellulite or sagging or aging skin or, or age spots or what have you, whatever new hiccup in your appearance, there's going to be a poultice for it and there's going to be a way to solve it. But that's only to keep us distracted from the fact that in reading this film in, in a feminist lens using Naomi Wolf's text, the men are controlling the game and they're also making all the big decisions while women kind of run around and distract each other um, through their competition against each other. And I know by the end of the movie, they become quote friends, but they're more like frenemies because, you know, to me, they, they wasn't that last scene. They like pull each other down and like, they both yeah, crumble I, into I mean, yeah, yeah. They, they get crumbled into dirt because uh, I believe it's Goldie Hawn that trips if I remember right. Um, yeah. And Streep's about to let her fall. So Han drags her down with her. I mean, so no, I absolutely agree, Alex. Yeah. We can imagine it's probably not the first time in the last 35 years so you, they've injured or, and or killed one another. Right. I mean, I'm sure they've, I mean, there are parts of each other that are peeling and falling apart. And because of all of that, they, you know, they have to stick together. Dalton, you, you, you Dalton, oh, sorry, you're, you're telling me that Han tripped first? <laughs> Boom. Nailed it. Out of the park. Love it. Yes. We'll be right back. No, but I mean in in conclusion it's just that this this competition between women only serves to be a distracting factor so that men can make all the decisions at least in the light of this film. The reading I want to give actually kind of ties well with what you guys are talking about as sort of this idea of um the objectification of women in terms of beauty as objects to be ogled to be looked upon, and I want to talk a little bit about um, the film in terms of the Hollywood star system, because I think Meryl Streep's character, um, Madeline, you know, and I, I love it's mad in hell, you know, as in mad as hell. Or uh, if you say them together, it's matter earn hell, matter in hell. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's just... Matter in hell. Matter in hell. damn redneck. It's so funny. Um, but what's going on, I think, also with uh, Madeline's character especially, is that uh, part of her struggle is that she can't find work, she can't continue on, she's sort of got a lifestyle, a certain level of notoriety that she once had, and it's all beginning to fade away because it was all quite superficially based upon you know, her looks and her attractiveness. And uh, what, what happens in cinema, and I want to do a little cinema history a little bit, um, if, if that's all right. So I'm going to nerd out to the, to the late 1890s, to the early 1900s, and uh, talk about just the fact that it, early, early on in cinema history, we didn't have stars. We didn't have uh, leading actors and actresses. They weren't even credited uh, for, a, for a long time. Uh, in, in the process of cinema, and, and eventually, the real, the, the really the first film star ever was Florence Lawrence, um, Flo Law. Um, you know, we got J Law now, and it was Flo Law back then. The paparazzi would write. I'm just kidding. <laughs> and and uh, interestingly, she became she became known almost by accident. Um, they, they, the, you know, in that time of early cinema, um, this this period in the silent era before we got into sort of the major studio production era, uh, they were they're generating like three hundred films a year. Florence Lawrence was in about three hundred films a year, and she's making quite a bit of money. And they began to know who she was, but they didn't know she was Florence Lawrence. They just knew she was the Biograph girl because she was in all the Biograph pictures. 
And uh, what 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 ended up happening that sort of you know rocketed her forward to stardom uh, is that she was sort of uh, swindled away in contracting uh, by Carl Emley, famously uh, later started Universal Pictures. At this point, he's running Imp Pictures, uh, Pictures, which is International Motion Picture Company. Um, and uh, he 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 produced a false New York Times, I believe, article about her death in a train car accident, and. And then a week later said, it's lies from Biograph. The Biograph girl is fine, but now she's the imp girl. And that was like the, the social media campaign. This is a true story. This is this all is facts. This is just some crazy facts. shit. <laughs> this is fucking nuts. Are you serious? This is all true. Absolutely This true. one guy just like spun this whole yarn. Absolutely. Just to be like, she's ours. Right. And, wow. And this is the day of, of full vertical inter- integration of cinema. So um, it was the same company that would own production, distribution, and exhibition. So they owned the same theaters, and they distributed the films, and they produced the films all themselves. And so you wanted to, if you want to see Biograph pictures, you had to go to Biograph Theater and see Florence Lawrence. And they sort of knew that she was the Biograph girl, and she was sort of becoming America's darling and all that. And now we know the Biograph girl is now the imp girl. D- and Dustin, that's does, Lemley's strategy. Dust, Dustin, by the way, does mean Biograph, the motion picture company, not a film like biography films. No, 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 absolutely. Biograph has a, it was a company that no longer exists. Correct. Thank you. I, that clarification I think was important. Thank you, Dalton. And um, and so what? And you know, again, because she was marketable, she was sort of a Polly Pureheart sort of character, and uh, she was uh, a, a way in which um, basically her persona, her her image. And uh, the fact that she was now the girl associated with his pictures, it was a way to sell movies. She became a commodity. She was mad hot, bruh. She, yeah, she was mad she's hot. She's really, really pretty. Yeah. I and mean, has like a strong cleft chin, too, which is pretty cool. Man, I could have a crush on a girl born in the 1880s. I don't care. Yeah, she's hot. Don't discriminate. No doubt. Um, yeah. And uh, so, anyway, uh, but, but again, she was commodified. A- in the same way, we see Madeline's experience is that she wanted to be an actress. She wanted to make it. She wanted to you know, make a living and all that. But she was absolutely being exploited for her body, specifically um, the ability to give visual pleasure with her body. And as that usefulness began to come aside, uh, fall aside as a commodity and not as a human being, she was easily cast aside. And what the film is dealing with is, in, in a large part, um, her um, struggle to not have uh, herself cast aside. And then, of course, Goldie Hawn sort of sticks the nail in the coffin, and I sent a Snapchat of the film as I was watching it, and we see Marilyn, uh, uh, Meryl Streep scratching the post as Goldie Hawn says, and she was a bad actress. That was really, I liked that moment a lot. It's, it's, it's fantastic. Yeah. And uh, But again, the point being, it, she didn't have to be a good actress. It wasn't mm. about her talent. It wasn't about her craft. It was about her, again, as a commodity uh, and, and sort of a plug-and-play sort of formula in filmmaking in which we can sell this film if we have the pretty girl. That, that Again, men typically, and, and the gaze of film is typically male, as Laura Mulvey says, and uh, that we can ogle her, and then that's going to be a selling point. And she is fighting against her commodification, but she's fighting against it in a way that she's sort of trying to renew and reify herself as a commodity instead of trying to break out and become a human being herself. And uh, that is really, really troubling. But that is exactly the sort of system um, that Hollywood, as a as a as a systematic industrial production system of art, does. Is that it creates a situation in which human beings do become commodities, and then they learn in some strange way, ideologically, to love being commodities. 
and want to come back to that. And the ending result of that is shattered, broken lives. And I think, again, you know, Dalton has already m mentioned the point, and I think that's exactly how the film ends. Um, I do think there's an interesting connection to Mulholland Drive, right, which is a story that tells the same thing and burying the body there. Yeah, um, going back to your point, reaffirming the shattered, broken lives, I just looked up um, Florence Lawrence's uh, mm. Wikipedia, and she definitely committed suicide. Oh, no doubt, no yeah. doubt. She lost her usefulness, and she couldn't go on, and she killed herself. Jesus. Yeah, her note, Dear Bob, call Dr. Wilson. I'm tired. I hope this works. Goodbye, my darling. They can't cure me, so let's go at that. Lovingly, Florence. P.S. You've all been swelled, guys. Everything is yours. Christ. Yeah, that's true facts. Yeah, I mean, and that and that that is a, that is the the overall continued repeated. Welcome to the machine, Jesus. Yeah, Hollywood story it, it is part of what the Hollywood machine does is it doesn't create humans, it creates mannequins, and uh, you know the use of mannequin paint and spray paint, you know, and, and sort of his when 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 Bruce Willis's character yeah. becomes a undertaker. I mean it, it's it's absolutely about that. You are a painted on human being. Yeah, I mean there image like, of a like human I said being, there are some they? fabulous I, I I can't say it enough. The fact that this film tackles these uh, these subjects is really a, um, astonishing and really great and and the screenplay to its credit I, I mean I did knock it a couple of times but to its credit it really does have some very insightful things to say. Particularly I mean the mannequin paint uh thing the, the fact <laughs> The way they look when they we they they lift their veils after the funeral and it's just yeah it just gets more absurd throughout the paint chipping off of them yeah uh, it's hysterical in its tragedy it's it's it is forcing you to look at the absurdity of this nightmare uh, and just really how ridiculous look at the cosmic joke of it all um, so yeah I mean I still don't love it but I really do appreciate a lot of the things that it does. Uh, I, I guess I, I think the two of you have made me come around um, on my reading. I'll be honest. I, I, I don't stand by that reading anymore. Um, I don't. Wow. Yeah. Well, all right, then. I mean, that's, this, is, this is why we do this show, is so we can have conversations about I don't movies. think that's ever happened. No, no, not in 126 episodes. Yeah. Never once. I, I don't stand by that reading any longer. I think I'm, in, I think I'm wrong. So thank you very much, dear co-host, for that spot-on, really, I think, a very, very fruitful conversation uh, about this film. And again, I think this film is, you know, again, I picked this because I think it really is good trash. It is stuff that we don't talk about. It's, it's a film that doesn't enter in the conversation, and I think it really can in sort of uh, poignant and meaningful ways. I think it's definitely a worthwhile effort, and I'm glad we put out the effort together. Uh, so thanks for, uh, you know, uh, humoring me, folks. Thanks and, for putting out. Yeah, no, that's what I do. And uh, so let's uh, move on to the time of the show in which we give our verdict, which we say shelf or trash, else or instead. I begin with you, Miss Alexandra Bohannon. What say you? Yeah, um, I mean, going through this conversation, you know, even me giving my own reading, it really made me look more fondly at the film. So I don't necessarily think it's a must own, but I think it's a must watch. I think you should at least see it once. Anyway, um, so my else's, uh, as it were, um, I would recommend to you uh, the 2007 film Stardust, just because of the similar themes in regarding um, uh, the witch who tries to prevent herself from aging by consuming the young star, you know, kind of the same. Kind There's of, a very similar sort of de-aging yeah, process in the a mirror scene competition, as well. The competition between the uh, old and the young, and, you know, it's like, oh, I've got boobs again that are not saggy and all that. Um, and, you know, the fantasy setting always is, is helpful. 
Um, then for another Meryl Streep being um, caddy, you could go for Devil Wears Prada. Um, such a good movie. <laughs> such a fun movie. Oh, I haven't so seen fun. that in ages. Um, and then lastly, just because, you know, Zemeckis, and I, and I read something and I can't remember where I read it, but there's some parallel um, between this film and this film. Uh, Goldie Hawn took the potion on October 26th, 1985. So, which Back is to the Future. The day that Marty McFly goes back to 1955. Yep. Well, thank you very much, Ms. Alexandra Bohannon. <laughs> Mr. Dalton Stewart, what do you say? Shelf or trash? Elsa instead? You definitely shouldn't shelf this because the DV transfer is shit. I do think you should watch it. I think it's, very, I think it's funny. Um, I think it's interesting. Um, and it's got a lot of interesting and important things to say i don't think it's great though uh so you you don't need to own it both because there's not a good copy to own and also because you know it's just not essential film viewing um but if you get the chance you should definitely watch it because it is kind of a hard movie to find uh and it's it's really funny they used to show it on tv all the time and they don't anymore so if you get the chance definitely watch it i would also watch uh with it uh double indemnity um because basically they have the same idea they're they're gonna they're gonna kill somebody's lover um, and, and run away together and double indemnity is like the one of the best more movies ever made it's so good yes it is um it also made me think of Shaun of the dead their plan to get to the winchester so it made me think of that as well um i also was very strongly reminded of a sketch on this most recent season of amy schumer's uh sketch show on comedy central uh, inside amy schumer from I think the second episode of this season, which is airing right now, I think it's the third season. Uh, the name of the episode and the sketch uh, in the episode is "Last Fuckable Day." Um, oh yeah, I remember Amy this. Schumer stumbles across a brunch being had by Tina Fey, Julie Louis Dreyfus, and Patricia Arquette, uh, and they're celebrating uh, Julie Louis Dreyfus's last fuckable day because the media has declared that you know she's not hot anymore. Mm. Um, and I think that whole sketch really speaks to everything this movie speaks to. Um, so again, as Alex pointed out, you know, talking about the reissue of the myth of the, the beauty myth, rather the fact that we've re- had to reissue this, this book 20 years later, 20 years later, there's a sketch on a comedy central show dealing with the same stuff. So I know those, uh, are kind of unconventional things to pair with this. None of them really pair directly with the film, uh, because honestly this, this movie is kind of unique in that way. I mean, I, they're really, there's not a lot. There's not really anything like it, which is pretty cool. Uh, Say what you will about Bob Zemeckis. A lot of his movies are kind of one of a kind. All right. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Um, Mr. Arthur Gordon, what do you say? Shelf or trash? Else or instead? I I am really torn on this. Uh, I had high expectations to watch it again because I I had fond memories of it from, from childhood. And I, it's not essential viewing, so I, I think you pass on this one. Um, and just go ahead and watch some other stuff. Uh, watch some of the stuff that's quoting, like I mentioned earlier, Dial In For Murder, One Flew Over The Cuckoo's Nest, uh, Rear Window, any of those movies uh, that are brought up. Sunset Boulevard, I think, would pair well, especially with Double Indemnity, um, if, you, if you go that route. Also, uh, watch David Lean's uh, Blythe Spirit. Um, Based off a Noel Coward play, um, I got to see Angel Lansbury be in *Blythe Spirit* on Broadway. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, it was, that's a, that's a fun play. Yeah, it's it was a, fun a great, movie. great show. Um, and and so check some of that stuff out. Well, here we are, Dustin. Shelf or trash? Elser instead. Go. Okay, I, I do this a lot. There's there's a sort of the this this love I have with uh, films from a certain era. The early '90s is one of those times. And, uh, I mean, there's a lot of movies that are, they're not great. They're not, you know, especially notable. I think about, like, Joe versus the Volcano and uh, an early Tom Hanks, Meg Ryan uh, joint picture. But I agree. 
absolutely. Really solid movie. It absolutely is, and it's a lot of fun. And I think, again, what it does, I think, is quite brave mm-hmm. and quite interesting. So I would go ahead and say Shell for those reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, I would pair it with Mulholland Drive. I would no. also, I mean, because, I mean, it's, yeah. a, it's a poison valentine to Hollywood. Mm-hmm. And I think it sort of puts on the nose exactly what it's talking about. I also uh, pair it with a little documentary available on Hulu Plus currently, if you're a Hulu Plus subscriber, uh, from the Criterion Collection called The Love Goddesses. And it is all about these early uh, cinema and uh, into uh, the 50s, maybe Elizabeth Taylor is probably about the end of it, uh, um, period of time in which uh, these women are being sort of exploited for their looks and how that went about. And there is a section in this film about Mae West and her sexuality on, in, on screen. And I'm going to tell you what, I'm in love with Mae West. Mae West was a badass. She was amazing. She... she Everything she ever said about her on-screen persona is brilliant. Yeah, she was a genius. Yeah, and uh, like I said, I mean that the May West sections themselves. There's a lot of great Theta Barra stuff. There's mm-hmm. a lot of great stuff about even mm-hmm. like early Bridget Bardot and you know that kind of stuff. But uh, May West, Marlena Dietrich, uh, fantastic. Greta Garbo, Liz Taylor towards the end. Liz Taylor towards the end. W- what's the name of the stock? Again? It's called Love Goddess. Love Goddess. It sounds really interesting. It's Brilliant, and again, it's on Hulu Plus streaming currently now. Do you, do you know who did it off the top of your head? Uh, no, that's fine. When did it come out recently? I couldn't tell you. No, it doesn't matter. I'm yeah. cur- I'm you've piqued my interest. Is that, my point. It, it, I want to know more. It's that good. Okay. Um, so yeah, absolutely worth your time. Absolutely worth all of our time. Uh, so watch that. Uh, thank you, thank you, thank you for those selections, uh, dear listener. Your syllabus just got longer. Let's move on though, and I would love to hear what you think about. Death Becomes Her. I'd love to hear what you think about our analysis, our readings, what we missed, what we didn't hit, what we are doing. Was I right the first time? Yeah, we. I would love to hear all those sort of things. Um, Arthur shakes his head with great vehemence there, so uh, you have a vote there. And we want to give you an opportunity to give that feedback via those magical means that we all know as social media. Mr. Arthur Gordon, do you know anything about those social media means by which conversations could be held? I do. First and foremost, you can find us at Facebook, facebook.com forward slash good trash genre cast. Uh, one word, um, we had a bit of feedback coming in for our Devil Rejects game about musicians and film. Uh, Taylor Drake offered up the uh, the Fincher Resner uh, collaborations uh, for uh, Social Network and uh, the Girl with the Dragon Tattoo. Musicians working in film. No, oh, yeah, the screen that's not. A, yeah, I mean, we didn't even. Well, no, I did talk about scores with the Nick Cave score yeah. for the yeah, proposition. Yeah, yeah. I forgot about that. Uh, man, yeah. Uh, I uh, well, and it's important. People forget about Atticus Ross. He's a crucial part of that team for those scores. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Also, you can find us on Google Plus if you're into that, um, if that's what you're into. Um, and we do have some feedback coming in from over there. Uh, more about the uh, Devil's Rejects. Uh, Devil's Rejects was a fan pick from The Rolling Beatles. One, two, three. Still want to listen to that band. And uh, he got back with us after listening to the episode. Woohoo! Okay. I'm, re- I'm ready. He said, hey, guys, just listen to your podcast on the Devil's Rejects, and I agree with you all on some stuff, but not everything. Uh, He really and truly thinks this is one of Rob Zombie's better films. He thinks it's better than Halloween. Uh, He does agree, though, with how Rob Zombie really doesn't want the audience uh, to like any of the characters because basically they're all dicks in some sense. Uh, But either way, Captain Spaulding is still his favorite character. Uh, He says, so I want to thank you guys for doing my podcast suggestion, and I wouldn't mind if you guys would do another one on, let's just say, Stephen King's It. And how they are making a new one in 2015, 16. And remember, they all float down here. LOL. Anyway, Rolling Beatles, one, two, three. We appreciate the feedback. We appreciate you listening and suggesting stuff and talking to us. And, and we're glad that you enjoyed the show. 
Um, and so thank you for all of that. And, uh, dear listener, you can you can check us out on Facebook. Check us out on Google+. Plus. You could also email us, uh, goodtrashgenrecast at gmail. Uh, you could also rank us on iTunes. We had one new rating. No review, but we got another rating, uh, it looks like, over there. Woo! Uh, in Good. the positive side, four stars or five stars, somewhere in that neighborhood. Uh, but generally positive, so we're happy about that. So thank you for that, dear listener. Well, thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. Mr. Dalton Stewart, do you know anything else about social media means by which conversations might be held? Yeah, we're on Twitter and shit, yo. Uh, we are on there at good underscore trash. Uh, we do have a little bit of feedback coming in this week. Uh, I missed this one last week. Uh, Brigham Cole wrote in uh, with his favorite picks for uh, musicians and film. Um, one that I had mentioned also. He says he loves seeing Tom Waits in anything. Uh, Imaginarium of Dr. Parnassus, The Outsider, Seven Psychopaths, Dracula, etc. Uh, we have a new follower in the way of a jo- one George Feldichuk, I think. His uh, handle is at prompter. Um, so thanks for following us. I, I appreciate that. Uh, we also got a follow from one Heath Huffman, who we all actually know in real life. Heath, dear listener, may or may not be romantically involved with one of the hosts of the Good Trash Honor cast. I'll leave it to you to guess uh, which one of us he's involved with. Uh, lots of retweets and favorites coming in this week. Uh, and a little bit of news from uh, Brigham Cole Corner, as he always does. I'll get into that and fire it up. And that's all the feedback we've got coming in this week. Thanks, Dalton Stewart. Appreciate all of that. Um, dear listener, please, please go ahead and give us those feedback via all those magical means of social media, comments at Podbean, at Stitcher, at iTunes, wherever you happen to be listening, and we would love to have the opportunity to read that on the air. But enough of this foolishness, guys. It's time to play the game. It's time to play the game. Time to play the game. This week's game is our cinematic femme fatales. We'd love to see, or we have um, already seen. That's right, favorite cinematic femme fatales, current or future, brought to you by Death Becomes Her. Death! Something, something, come joke. You're welcome. So that's what we're going to talk about. We're going to talk about uh, film fat- uh, actresses that have either played really memorable film fatales or um, actresses we would really like to see uh, play film fatales. Because this is a movie with two of them. Correct, correct. Both uh, Meryl Streep and Goldie Hawn, I think somewhat against type, yeah. are, are doing this. For both of them. And so it's interesting. And so those uh, great spider ladies of cinema and those spider ladies we'd like to see in the future. That is the game of the week. I ask you first, Mr. Dalton Stewart. What say you? I'm going to start with Eva Green. Uh, she spent most of 2014 playing femme fatales. She does it all the time uh, because she's so damn good at it. Uh, she's got scary eyes, and she's exceptionally attractive and is an immensely talented actress. Uh, I also would like... I, we have seen Scarlett Johansson play femme fatales. I'd like to see more of it. Uh, yeah. She's also really She was on it. my list, too. Isabella Rossellini plays a hell of a femme fatale in this film, plays a hell of a one in Blue Velvet. Uh, honestly, I think she could do it again uh, because she's a, an amazing actress and has scary eyes. I love her, yeah. I do, too. Um, also... What are we going to do? Not talk about Mulholland Drive again? Naomi Watts and Laura Haring uh, both alternate roles as femme fatale throughout that movie a couple of times, um, and they're so great at it. So those are my picks. I couldn't. Basically, everybody I thought of has already done it, but I wouldn't mind seeing them do it again. Excellent. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Miss Alexander Bohannon, what say you? 
Well, my pick, since um, I knew I knew Scarlett Johansson was going to be snapped up pretty quickly, uh, my one other that I'm going to add is Esme Bianco, who plays uh, Ross or Rose in Game of Thrones. Um, yeah, I mean, she she would be great. I feel like she could pull it off pretty well. She looks dangerous and yeah, she, she has was getting, a rock and bod. She was literally just cast for the pilot. Uh, and that she ended up getting her role expanded because they liked her so much. Wow. Yeah, she's that good of an actress. She's amazing. Yeah, uh, she, she, be more she stuff. nailed it. I'd love to see her in more things. And honestly, I I love Dalton's list so much. I want to marry it. Oh, yeah, thanks, bro. You're welcome. Excellent. Thank you very much, Miss Alexander Bohan and Mr. Arthur Gordon. What say you? Uh, well, this is kind of a tricky one for me. Um, I think I'm going to list some actresses I would like to see play maybe against type. And and maybe try out uh, as the uh, the femme fatale. I think the first one, and she may have kind of done this in Gangster Squad, but I didn't see it. But I'd say uh, Emma Stone, the Lady in Red. Um, I think uh, she'd be interesting. I think she'd pull off the look, and I think she's she's fun. She's a good actress, and so I'd, I'd go with that. I'd also say uh, Anna Kendrick. Uh, who oh, I think that would, would pull be off nice. That would be really interesting. Yeah, I, I like Anna oh, Kendrick. Oh, I like I'm that. Up for that. Thing. Uh, and then finally, I would also say uh, Evangeline Lilly would be. A fun one. Uh, yes, throw in there as well. Uh, I, I kind of fell in love with her uh, watching The Hobbit too. Well, those are the only choices I've got for you, Dustin. So uh, take it away. Thank you very, very much. Of course, I'm a big fan of the film noir, and so I like lots of the great um, classic femme fatales. I'm only going to give two picks today, though. Um, one of them being a classic and one uh, something I like to see playing one from the contemporary era. The, the first one is Ava Gardner, uh, The Killer's. Uh, she's amazing, and but no, she's just amazing. I mean, that's all there is to it. I just I love her and all the things that she does. Nobody's doubting you, Dustin. Yeah, I mean, she's great. Uh, the next, one, I'd like to see Carrie Mulligan play a real femme fatale, not oh. not a Beatrice. Yeah, good pick. Dig it. Good. Pick. I yeah. I'm digging this pick so hard. Yeah, she's played close to it. I'd, yeah, I'd like to see full on because there's, there's there's a line in film noir, you know, mm-hmm. and in Drive she plays sort of the uh, the Beatrice figure, the, uh, the 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 wholesome and she, and, and lovely. She's yeah. she gets you into as much trouble as a film fatale does, but it's not as nefarious. Yeah, it, she yeah. doesn't intend to. It's not it's not really kind of her fault. And uh, I'd like to see her do it on purpose. And uh, I think that'd be really fascinating. So um, that would be my pick uh, for that. Uh, dear listener, we'd love to hear your picks and uh, more feedback from you um, about that in those magical means of social media. Let's move on, though, and let's talk about what's got us fired up this week in pop culture. Oprah has a turtle farm, something, something, poopy pants. From Parks and Rec. Okay, I've been wanting to do that. Now that we're doing this live, I can do it. I've been wanting to do that for like three months now. That's so funny. I can't remember the rest of the words. Well, though. Dalton, since you're already talking, why don't you go ahead and tell us what you're fired up about? This yeah, week? I guess I will. So the uh, Wachowskis and J. Michael Straczynski, uh, the creator and like main guy behind Babylon Five, their television series Sense Eight premiered on Netflix. Netflix on a Netflix. Netflix this last Friday, and I watched the whole thing already. Uh, with my girlfriend. Is it good? I love it. Oh, I'm so excited! Uh, everyone that doesn't like it, I just think is a sad person that doesn't like to be happy. Because it's great. Uh, everyone's like, it doesn't make any sense, it's really slow. Yeah, because it's a fucking television show. Sometimes they take a little time to get going. Uh, it's a character study, first and foremost, though. Uh, it really is not that invested in the overarching plot, which is an interesting choice. It hits some some weird points along the way, there's some weird choices, Um but overall, I'm totally sold on it. Um, it has the best use of what's going on by four non-blondes that has 
ever occurred in the history of film and television. Period. End of story. That's all I'm fired up about. It's that good. Again, I watched a 12-episode season in like three days. Um, nice. That's all I did. Excellent. Thank you very much, Mr. Dalton Stewart. Ms. Alexander Bohannon would say you. One thing that's got me fired up, and this is the only thing, is Game of Thrones. I'm getting on that bandwagon, and I'm on it really hard, riding it all the way to Happy Town. Um, it's Or Sad Town, because everyone's going to die a lot. Uh, there's going to be a lot of deaths and rapes and tortures. For me, Game of Thrones had this weird five-episode hurdle that I just couldn't get over for like starting it for a really long time. It's a lot like The Wire for some people in that regard. Yeah, and so um, I'm over that then, and I've just been full on. Uh, Danny's my favorite character, and I'm so excited to see um, what happens to her as the series unfolds, and of course, everyone else, because you're just invested in everybody in Game of Thrones, and they're all probably going to die, and I'll just have to get over it. Thank you very much, Miss Alexander Bohannon. Mr. Arthur Gordon, are you fired up this week? A little bit. I managed to go see uh, Jurassic World on the day you're listening to this, hopefully. Uh, it will have released, and so I got to go uh, catch that uh, the other night. Um, I thought it was fun. It's a movie about dinosaurs ripping crap up. If you expected anything else, you may be sorely disappointed. I thought it was a lot of fun. Here's what I'm most interested in. <coughs> Does the promise of Burt Macklin, Raptor Detective, deliver? Yeah. Yeah. I love Chris Pratt. So they, I, the, he teams up with the Raptors to take out the evil dinosaur. Correct. That's that's the thing that happens. That's what happens. It, is, it happens. Does he ride the motorcycle up the back of the dinosaur? No. Shit. All that right. does not happen. Close enough. But you know what? Chris Pratt is, I think, turning into one of, one of the, the better leading men in Hollywood in action. Uh, he's just put out great performances you know one after another there are some cliche things that happen there are plot holes there are moments where you're like well that was just tacky but it's a movie about dinosaurs and that takes me back to my childhood and the the first movie is not without problem your childhood when dinosaurs (laughs) were on the earth when me and dustin ran around with the brachiosaurus um you know the first movie is not without its plot holes and deus ex machina and and issues such as that and so it's it's a bit glorified i think uh, my only major issue, I think, is with the the, uh, the visual effects. That's very CGI heavy, especially with the close up work of the dinosaurs. Ew! And uh, that's where Spielberg's masterpiece tops it because those puppets in the original movie were just phenomenal and they were brilliant. And I think that hurts this one more than anything. But you know what? I had fun. I I predict critically it's going to get panned, but I, I I enjoyed it. I had a good time. It's doing okay so far. Is right. it? Yeah. I, I mean, the, the consensus is mixed to positive. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you very much, Mr. Arthur Gordon. I've only fired up about two things this week. Um, both of them I just read about recently in Sight and Sound. Uh, one of them is about uh, one Brian Cranston, whom we all love on this show, who is uh, taking on a very Oscar Beatty role playing um, Dalton Trumbo, uh, the famous screenwriter. You had me for a second. Well, I was like, I'm sorry, what? Uh, he was blacklisted in the 50s because he refused to testify um, before the Senate um, Committee for Un-American Activities. Uh, he's a screenwriter of uh, Spartacus, of uh, one of my favorite films, Noir Gun Crazy, um, uh, Roman Holiday with Greg Peck and Audrey Hepburn. Uh, so, you know, great guy, but Brian Cranston's going to play him. Are you just, like, on the hype train right now? Just, like... That's exciting, right? S- yeah. Like, like, like this is all of my kitchen right now, and I'm very excited about that. I'm also very excited because uh, Harmony Corinne is working on his second film after Spring Breakers, and he's actually Woo-hoo! working on a Florida trilogy. <gasps> and um, So, 
he's already worked on another film after Spring Breakers. No, the, the, this is number this two. Be the second. This would be the second of a trilogy of a, of a Florida trilogy. Of a Florida trilogy. Okay, continue. Um, starring uh, one Idris Elba. Shut your fucking mouth. <laughs> so a, there. As a rapper, so as a hip hop. Shut up rapper. and take my money. <laughs> Listen. As a hip hop rapper who has an old associate who gets out of prison, played by Benicio del Toro. Shut up and take <laughs> more what? of my money. What? Um, and it's there to exact revenge. Um, Robert Pattinson is in it. Uh, James Franco is also in it. And then uh, yeah. Del Toro's parole officer is played by one Al Pacino. God, sold. What is this sold. movie? How, how did, did he do this? He made Spring Breakers. That's how. Nobody gave a shit about him because his movies were mean and stupid. And then he made Spring Breakers, which is brilliant. Uh, yes, it is. I'm so excited. Yeah. The name of the film is, I want to get the title correct, um, is going to be called... The trap, and so oh, it's kind of a generic yeah. title. Yeah, it sounds. <clears throat> Can, I got one down. question: Do we know if it's a prequel? And Franco's playing alien. Uh, Franco, I don't think is playing alien. Oh. I, believe, I believe the trilogy is like a spiritual trilogy, much like the Cornetto trilogy, much like the Dollars trilogy. Correct. I was hoping that's okay. Will he still play a white trash, white boy gangster from the Florida Panhandle? One can only hope. Franco. You know I pray to you every night. <laughs> please, 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 do it again. Yeah, Franco's one of Dalton's patron saints. I, he's just so fucking weird. I love him. I I love I love how unabashedly weird he is. His whole career has been a performance art piece, and he fascinates me to no end. Yeah. And speaking of patron saints, we are going to have an opportunity for you, dear, dear listener, to have um, a stake in the good trash genre genre cast. Um, starting hopefully sometime this summer, uh, we want to release this as soon as we can, as soon as we get our stuff all together. We want to have a Patreon, um, which, if you don't know, is a kind of a... It's a similar model to a Kickstarter and other crowdfunded sites that is essentially like an NPR-type pledge drive where you can give um, a certain amount per month to help fund the Good Trash Genre cast. Um, We have good equipment now, but um, we want to make sure that we keep having good equipment and have like a professional sound and have some really, really cool things happen to the cast in the future. So um, as soon as that drops, we will let you know, but we just wanted to get you guys ready for whenever that Patreon do- drops because we would appreciate you so much if you were able to help us out a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. We'd love we'd love for you to be our partners as we do this show, and we've got some great rewards we've put together and are putting together uh, currently to do just that. And, and the reason why is because we want to keep having these conversations. We want to keep talking about movies. We want to keep talking about the movies that they don't talk about in film studies class. We want to talk about the movies that nobody talks about sometimes, and uh, which might involve um, next week's film, which is uh, Wolf Cop. And we're very excited. God bless America. I'm so happy. <laughs> I didn't. Did you know, Alex? I had no clue. Okay, they decided this without us, but we've been talking about it for about as soon as Wolf Cop went on Netflix. We said we're doing that, right? I don't know anything about this movie other than the premise. It's about a werewolf cop. I believe it's a Canadian feature, and I can tell you right now that's literally all I need to know. Um, hopefully, it's better than Teen Wolf, um, and as good as RoboCop. <laughs> One can only hope. Which, of course, is going to be the, the mashup, you know, franchise, Teen Wolf Cop. <laughs> or Robo Wolf Cop, take your pick. Robo Teen Wolf Cop. Robo wow. Teen Wolf Cop. The world just exploded inside my brain. Um, but that's next week's film, so it's on Netflix. Check it out. Um, 
I guarantee this, it's going to be a fun show. That I can guarantee. I have nothing else to say about what's going to happen. I know very little. But what I do know is this, is that movies are so much more than just 90 minutes uh, where you eat some popcorn and look at a bright wall in a dark room. It's a, it's a time in which you are able to have conversations uh, with other people uh, about what makes life worth living, what makes, uh, what makes society work, what's wrong with society, what's right with society, and how we learn how to be better human beings. So take a look at a film, and until next time, we'll see you. Judgment Day. <laughs> Electric Boogaloo? Hobbit Harder. I think it's the Lost World. <laughs> we can do this all day. Yep. We've done it before. I'm just picturing... Uh, Carmageddon. I'm just picturing Gandalf as the Terminator. <laughs> Come so, with me if you want to <laughs> get high. You shall not pass. Unless you're holding Bud, then get over here. Pipe weed is regular weed, guys. I don't know if you picked up on this throughout watching the Lord of the Rings movies. They're just smoking dope. <laughs> that dragon is not real. <laughs> really? Pipe weed. Mary and Pippin are literally high in the two towers because they got into... It's somewhere halfway between tobacco and marijuana, yeah, I'd say. They got yeah. into Christopher Lee's weed uh, after they broke his tower or whatever. They're, they've got his the munchies. They talk about having the munchies. Pipe weed is regular pot. You heard it here first, listener. Hobbits are a bunch of fucking stoners. They are not role models. That's why they eat so much. You're Fourth right. meal, fifth meal. Yeah. Second breakfast. Lebensies. Jesus Christ. <laughs> it, in hey. the modern era, Hobbits invented Taco Bell. See, this is, this is why the Shire is doomed to fall, because nobody has a real job. They just smoke weed all day, a bunch of damn hippies. Smoke weed every day. <laughs> They're relying on the realms of men and elves to fucking bail them out of this war, because all they do is smoke hash. I could have created a civilization, <laughs> but, but I got high. high. <laughs> I was going to kill that ring, but then I got high. Please. I was going to take it to Mount Doom, but then I got high. (laughs) Yeah, that just whole, that whole conversation. Uh, All right, we got to get through this episode. It's almost too It's like, I don't care about nothing. We'll make it someday, kids. Roll another blunt. Until I got high <laughs> I was gonna get up and find
behind the broom, but then I got high. Uh, my room is still messed up, and I know why. Why, man? Yeah, because I got high. Because I got high. Because I got high. I was gonna go to class before I got high. Come on, y'all. Check it out. I could have cheated and I could have passed, but I got high. Uh, uh, Taking it next semester, and I know why. Why, man? Yeah, cause I got high, because I got high, because I got high. Go to the next, go to the next, go to the next. Uh. I was gonna go to work, but then I got high. Uh. I just got a new promotion, but I got high. Uh. Now I'm selling dope, and I know why. Why, man? Yeah, cause I got high. Because I got high, because I got high. I was gonna go to court before I got high. I was gonna pay my child support, but then I got high. No, you wasn't. They took my whole paycheck, and I know why. Because I got high, because I got high, because I got high. Uh, I'm serious, man. I was gonna pull right over and stop, but I was high. Uh, <laughs> now I'm a paraplegic, and I know why. Why, man? Yeah, because I got high. Because I got high. Because I got high. I was gonna pay my car note until I got high. Say what? Say what? I wasn't gonna gamble on the boat, but then I got high. Hey, yeah, yeah, yeah. Excellent delivery. I don't believe in Hitler. 
That's what I said. Oh my goodness. Yes. So all of you skins. Skins. Please give me more hair. <laughs> 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 <laughs>